thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, we bring you the best bits of 2016, from democracy and nature and the science of dating to why it pays to look at the light side. What a year it's been. I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Where to begin? It's always a tricky decision to make when there are 52 programmes and within them 500 interviews to choose from. But why not start with the heart? Here's an interview Chris Smith did back in June when he put his ticker through its paces with an ECG or electrocardiogram at Addenbrooke's Hospital. I'm James Rudd. I'm a consultant cardiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. And we are in the ECG recording department and we are going to record your ECG today. So if you'd like to follow me, we will head through into the examination room. This is Laura. She is a cardiac physiologist, and she's going to be recording the ECG today for you. Hi, Laura. Hi, Chris. Uh, So what do you want me to do? Um, What I'll need you to do is remove the clothes from your top half so that I can get to your bare chest. Okay, I'm down to my bare chest. Okay, so if you could lie down so that your head's on the pillow and just make yourself nice and comfortable there on the bed. I don't normally get to lie down at work (laughs) in the hospital. Are you comfortable enough? I'm very comfortable. Um, So I just need to shave your chest so that I can pop the stickers on. When you say stickers? Um, The electrodes for the ECG. Right, okay. I didn't realise I was going to get a shave when I came to work. Yep, so have your chest there. (laughs) So are you ready for this one? I, I think so. On the other side. There we go. So just taking off a little, little tiny bit right in the middle, basically between the breasts, isn't it? Yeah, just either side of your sternum there. Are you allergic to alcohol wipes or disinfectants? I'm not allergic to alcohol, I know that for a fact. <laughs> alcohol wipes, no fine. No bar here, unfortunately. So I'm just going to wipe the areas where I'm going to put your electrodes, just to make sure there's a good contact with your skin. So it might feel a bit cold now, okay? You're also cleaning up my ankles. Yes, so stickers go on your arms and legs as well as on your chest. All right, so lots of stickers now. They look like they've got sort of jelly on the back. They're sticky with the jelly. Yes, there is a bit of gel and that makes the contact with your skin to pick up the electrical activity. So there's one gone on my left arm at the top, on my shoulder, one gone on my right side of my chest. That's two on the chest. Is there a particular place you put them? Yes, each sticker has a specific position so that each ECG we do is exactly the same for every person. So I'm just going to get all the wires now and I'm going to place these on all of the stickers. They've got almost like little crocodile clips, like you'd connect up to a battery or something yeah. on, on the ends of the wires. They, and they're going on these, yeah, on these they tabs. they just clip onto the stickers. They just clip onto the electrodes, OK? 
Like okay, that. so now I have wires everywhere. Yep, ten wires. <laughs> so now I need you to lie back into the bed and just relax as much as you can so that it makes a nice clear recording. And that's ECG done. Right, now it comes to the verdict. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to the cardiologist and find out what it shows. So we've got your ECG in front of us now, Chris, and what we can see is a piece of graph paper with some black lines on. In essence, we've got a plot of voltage against time. So this is a snapshot of your heartbeat over about five seconds and as you may be aware the heart is a large muscle it's about the size of your fist and within the heart are specialist cells which are called pacemaker cells and these cells generate very small voltages which we can pick up on the surface of the skin using the ECG test. Okay can you then take me through James how what we're seeing on this piece of paper relates to what my heart is doing? So the very first part of the trace here, I'm just pointing to a, it looks like a humpback bridge. This is called the P wave. And this actually happens when the atria at the top of the heart are full of blood and begin to pump the blood into the ventricles. And the atria are the holding chambers, if you like, at the top of the heart. And they receive blood from the rest of the body and also from the lungs. The next thing we see is a very sharp up and then down stroke. And this is when the main pumping chambers of the heart, the ventricles start to contract. They expel the blood around the body and also they also push blood to the lungs as well. Finally, we have another humpback bridge. This is called the T wave of the ECG. And this is when the electrical activity of the heart is resetting itself back to normal and the ventricles and the atria are relaxed and getting themselves ready for the next heartbeat. How could a cardiologist like you then take that trace and see when a person has a problem? So there are several elements we can look at. We can look at the heart rate. We can look at whether the heartbeats are happening regularly or irregularly. And we can also look at the actual waves themselves. Sometimes they have unusual shapes, which we recognise as being a signal of an abnormality in the heart. If I had heart disease, say a furred up coronary artery, not enough blood is getting to my heart, would you be able to tell that from an ECG? In most cases we can, yes, and it's always the first test that we do. As soon as you come into hospital, we would do an ECG, particularly if you had symptoms of heart problems like chest pain or palpitations. An ECG is a really quick, uh, inexpensive tool for uh, giving us a clue as to exactly what's going on with the heart. Chris Smith and James Rudd on the heart's inner workings there. Now, normally at this point in the show, we'd turn to Kat Arney for her myth conception. We take some questionable science, often sent in very kindly by you, and investigate it to see whether it cuts the scientific mustard. And the dogma we loved the most was about cats. At the risk of offending any of our cat-loving listeners, I'm much more of a dog person. So this week, I've been finding out what happens when you throw a cat out of the window. Before anyone complains, no animals were harmed during the making of this radio show. But I did want to discover if it's true that cats always land on their feet no matter how far they fall. So let's first take a look at what happens when they do make a successful four-footed touchdown and then what goes wrong when they don't. Cats, along with other animals, including rats and rabbits, have something called an air writing reflex. 
This means that when they sense they're falling and they're the wrong way up, they will attempt to flip over in the air in the hope of landing feet first. And because cats have an unusually flexible spine and don't really have collarbones, they're able to do this really well. It happens like this. First they bend in the middle, so the front half of their body twists in the opposite direction to the back half. Next, they tuck in their front legs to make their front half twist further and faster and stick out their back legs so their back half twists less. That gets the front half the right way up, front feet underneath, head on top. Then they switch round, tucking in their back legs and sticking out their front legs so the back half flips so their feet face the floor. This cat writing reflex starts kicking in from when a kitten is about three or four weeks old, and by six to seven weeks, they've got it nailed, ensuring a safe landing from a height of several storeys. There are a few things that can interfere with this, though, and the first is falling from an insufficient height to execute their backflip manoeuvre. They need to drop at least half a metre or so to have enough room to do it. Experiments with rats have shown that alcohol interferes with the writing reflex by messing about with the balance sensing mechanisms in their ears. So if you got your cat drunk and then threw it out of the window, it might struggle to land neatly. But please don't try this at home. The other big question is, do cats always manage to land on their feet from any height? And do they always escape unscathed? The answers to this depend on how far it's falling and what it lands on. Cats can certainly break bones by landing on concrete or other hard surfaces from heights of more than about 10 metres. This is so-called high-rise syndrome, as they can't absorb the shock, regardless of landing on their feet or not. But if they fall from more than about five storeys, something interesting happens. They hit what's known as terminal velocity, when they're falling as fast as gravity will let them. There's some suggestion that in this situation, once a cat has got itself the right way up, it will relax and spread out like a parachute, which might help to reduce injuries when it hits rock bottom. Intriguingly, a study in the 1980s looking at vet records of cats brought in after falls suggested 90% of animals falling from buildings survived. And in fact, their chances of surviving with fewer injuries were actually better if they fell from six or more storeys than from lower heights, suggesting maybe the kitty parachute idea is true. Of course, there is an obvious alternative explanation. Animals falling from greater heights might be much more likely to be dead on arrival, so wouldn't be taken to the vet, skewing the statistics. And a more recent study showed that the further it falls, the more likely your moggy is to sustain serious injuries. So while it's true that cats can, usually, land on their feet, they don't always make it out unscathed, and in some cases reach the end of their, also mythical, nine lives in a rather messy and tragic manner. Probably best to keep the window shut if you want to keep your kitty in one piece. And we're myth-busting as usual throughout 2017, so spot some dodgy science, send it our way. You can tweet at Naked Scientist or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, one poignant moment for us all this year was celebrating the Naked Scientist's 15th birthday. And we did so with a programme all about how science works. Here's a sneak peek Greer Jackson put together of what happens in our newsroom. Not to be dramatic or anything, but we have three short days to organise anywhere up to six top-notch interviews. And so, come Monday morning, the clock is already ticking. 
Okay, so we get in on a Monday and we tend to look at two main websites which give us all the embargoed news. So we kind of get a sneak peek, so we're there when the news breaks. There'll be some papers, especially on Nature, which don't have press releases, but mostly we're looking at the press releases uh, to give you that first kind of eye into the story because a paper title doesn't always give you that much of an idea of what you're looking for. A circular inclusion with inhomogeneous, non-slip, imperfect interface in harmonic materials. Hmm. And when we think about what's important, what do people need to know, we have this kind of mantra, it's health, wealth and heart. Things that affect our health, obviously, we all care about so much. For example... As the US declares its first homegrown cases of Zika in Florida, we've learned that up to 90 million people, including over one and a half million childbearing women, may be infected across the Americas as the initial wave of the Zika epidemic unfolds. Then we have wealth things that hit your pocket and in science actually there's quite a lot of stuff which is just incredibly expensive. This month technology giant Apple have launched an all new digital wallet called Apple Pay where you can now pay... And then heart is usually my favourite category. It's just the things that make you laugh. We call them and finally stories quite often you know in the news where they say and finally why penguins don't get cold feet. I like to get dinosaurs in there as often as possible. That's the unfinally. I love unfinally. Right, are you guys ready for a news meeting? We might pitch three or four ideas each because there's a lot of good science. If we went through all of it, it takes forever. What's next? The producer for that week picks the ones for us to go forward with. We all go away and we've got our stories that we need to look up and so we need to contact the scientists and make a research call. Hear it straight from their mouths. Hi, is that Professor Stephen Curry? Yeah, good, how are you? Find out a bit more about it and set up interviews with them. I, I worked out the other day, I'd probably interviewed about three and a half, four thousand people since I started doing these programmes. And we get um, about a 20-minute interview with them and um, this is then cut down to about four or five minutes, um, which is often the hardest thing. What do you choose to go in the programme? Hopefully by Thursday morning we have all of our interviews and then once we've done that, we write up a cue, which is something that introduces the interview. Connie Allback spoke with University of Cape Town researcher Claire Spottiswood, who's been out to Mozambique to study the phenomenon. We send in the audio for the managing editor to decide the running order for the programme. OK, I'm Chris Smith and I have the dubious pleasure of running The Naked Scientist and being the person who set it up in the first place. In order to choose an order for the stories in the news, we have to be thinking about several things. Foremost is, what's our lead story? Because the first thing people want to hear is the thing that's going to grab their attention. It's going to make a big difference to their life or the lives of many other people around the world. Or it's going to change the way that we view the world as a human race. So if you take Ebola as a good example... This has been around for 40 or 50 years since it was first discovered. People had largely dismissed this as a tropical disease and not really of much importance apart from to those people who, a handful of them each year, were catching it. Suddenly it begins to spread. This week, the lowdown on Ebola. We talked to the people in Sierra Leone who are trying to fight the outbreak, a new vaccine trial that's just kicked off, and we hear how it's not just humans that are affected by Ebola, but our closest primate cousins too. That's the lead story, though. How do you choose what comes next? 
we don't want to dwell too much on one interviewer, we don't want to dwell on too much of one subject, and so we try and create texture and movement in the news to keep people interested all the way through and provide them with a good snapshot of what's going on across the whole scientific arena. What we then do is that we get together and we write a script which uses all of those cues, those written introductions, and links everything together. And the two presenters, often it's Katani and myself, but other members of the team also take part, we will then record those links in the studio and then we compile the programme by taking the interviews we've already done and putting them within those links. And ta-da! The Naked Scientist programme is complete. Well, sort of. It goes through a series of checks and then is published on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you use for your fine ears. I think my favourite bit of the entire process is when I walk out of the studio on a Sunday night and you can say, that was a blinking good programme, I really enjoy doing it and few I know I've got tomorrow when I don't have to do any interviews. <laughs> In case you're wondering, yes, we do have that theme tune playing constantly through the year. And one of the biggest news stories this year, perhaps even of the decade, was the announcement of the detection of gravitational waves. A very exciting moment. We did a lot of running from office to office, telling our colleagues, have you seen this? You know, it's amazing. So it was, it was pretty fantastic. We'll have a whole new way to look at our universe, which is pretty exciting. And we can see so cool things, like black holes colliding. It's uh, really opening up of a new era. But what the heck were gravitational waves? I'm sure I wasn't the only one a little confused. But luckily, we're not far at all from Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy. Chris? Yes. Hi. Hi nice to meet you. Nice Hi. to meet you too. Hi. I thought the microphone might be a giveaway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my name is Christopher Moore, uh, and I'm a student uh, at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, uh, and I'm studying for my PhD, and I work on gravitational waves. So gravitational waves are typically very, very small ripples in the gravitational field, or space-time, uh, and they travel through the universe at the speed of light. So the gravitational field is something like the sun. You can imagine the sun as being a very heavy object sitting on a rubber sheet and the sheet bends in towards the sun and that curvature, that bending of the sheet is what the gravitational field really is. Rather than thinking of gravity as a pulling force, you can think of it as a curvature of the fabric of the universe, what we call space-time. To help me out, Chris had an idea for a demo we could do to visualise this. Right, so let's give this a go. I've brought along some props. I've bought, I couldn't find a rubber sheet. I found my housemate's bed sheet. I'm sure she won't mind my borrowing it. I've got a grapefruit to uh, represent the sun. And I've got some planets here as well, some, <laughs> some chocolates. So here we go. So we've pulled out the sheet as tight as possible. And it's formed a straight, a, a straight surface. It should be infinite, really, but we haven't got an infinite bed sheet. So uh, a large, flat sheet. Right. So this represents space-time. Yes. I'm going to dump a sun in it. Glunk. Right. The grapefruit, or sun, has pulled down the rubber sheet, or space-time, and now it's formed this sort of dip in the middle. Yeah, so the sun, uh, the grapefruit, is in the middle of our sheet, uh, and the sheet is bending in towards the middle of the sun, and this represents the gravitational field of the sun. So let's test out this gravitational field with planets. I'm going to roll all these planets 
along the sheet and see what happens. That's better. You've got nearly two orbits there. <laughs> so some of our planets shot off into the abyss, but um, some of them did some quite nice orbital shapes around our sun and eventually went into the middle. So the idea is if you were to roll the marble fast enough across the sheet but not, not directed towards the sun, it should roll round and round the centre, uh, the centre being the grapefruit, round and round, and this is called an orbit. This curvature of space-time means that planets are caught in the gravity of larger objects and they form orbits. Our demo isn't perfect. The friction of the sheet means that our planets actually slow down and fall into the centre. Luckily for us, space is free of this friction, so our planet isn't spiralling towards a fiery inferno. So can we use this demo to visualise gravitational waves? So in our demo, we had uh, a large grapefruit as the sun and a very small round chocolate sweet as our planet. If instead we had two grapefruits, so two large objects uh, going round each other, as they moved, they'd constantly change the shape of the rubber sheet. And if you looked at this from a long, long way away, you'd see small changes in the fabric of the sheet, small changes in the space-time, rippling out from the centre of this system. And these ripples would be the gravitational waves. The systems that uh, give off gravitational waves in large amplitude, the sorts of systems that we might be able to detect, are things like two neutron stars or two black holes in a very tight orbit. And these are not the sort of systems that are ideal to study using traditional electromagnetic telescopes. So these systems, it's much better to hunt for them using gravitational waves than it is using telescopes. So it's a completely new way of doing astronomy. So you can think of normal telescopes as being like your eyes and gravitational wave astronomy as being like your ears. And we're trying to listen to the universe as well as look at it. Chris Moore from the Institute of Astronomy. This is The Naked Scientist. We're celebrating the dawn of 2017 with a look back at the best bits from 2016. Still to come, when we learned how shopping trolleys can be fish friends, how not to get a date, and why laughter really is the best medicine. Now, us producers often end up making programmes close to our heart. And this was very true for fellow producer Greer Jackson, who made a programme about coffee. Greer starts every day with a cafetiere about the size of my head, so naturally she was very interested in whether the stuff is actually good for you. And for this programme, she brewed Cambridge's first truly local cup of coffee – and she picked up the beans at the Botanical Gardens with Alex Summers. So there are two main species of coffee that are grown worldwide, Coffea arabica and Coffea robusta. The high-quality coffees come from Coffea arabica, and the lower-quality, higher yields come from Coffea robusta. I'm looking at the two of them. One's just a bit shorter. They've both got sort of crinkled leaves, like someone's got a hair crimper and crimped the leaves for them. But otherwise, they're remarkably similar. It shouldn't be unsurprising that they look similar because Coffea arabica probably has similar ancestry to Coffea canifora or the robusta coffee. Now, we all know that plants like these are famous for their levels of caffeine, but why do they produce caffeine in the first place? It's quite interesting. They did an experiment with um, a spider. They got it to spin a web and they fed it all manner of different drugs from cocaine, ecstasy and caffeine. And what they found was that the spider produced the most erratic web when it was under the influence of caffeine. So you can truly see how effective caffeine is as an anti-herbivory agent, not necessarily so much as the case for ourselves. I assume you're not just growing it to make a lovely cup of coffee today. Why do you have it here at the Botanical Gardens? 
the real reason that we have it, like most of the collections here, is to provide both a resource to the university but also to provide a resource to the public. So in the case of coffee, we're all familiar with it from the shops, but it's nice to give people an idea of actually where it grows and where it comes from. Beans picked, we peeled off the red flesh, dried them and finally scraped off the outer husk to reveal the green bean underneath. Next up was an artisan coffee shop called Hot Numbers for roasting. So Alex and I set off with a handful of botanical beans to meet Simon Fraser. We're just going to actually weigh the content of this. It's about a handful, isn't it? It, it is. It's, it's quite a small amount, but we'll work with it. I'm just going to turn the scales on. We'll see. We've uh, 10 grams. So we'll try and make a very small filter coffee with this afterwards. Simon fired up the roaster to 150 degrees C, and not a degree more, because even a couple of degrees can turn a good cup of coffee into a bad one. It's a, it's a glorified tumble dryer, I reckon, with a, with a big colander underneath. I have but to admit, it does look very swish. It's all sort of black and, and stainless steel. I would say almost steam engine-like. Yeah, it is very much. A steam engine with two windows, one where you can see the flames and the other where you can see the coffee beans jump around the drum while they roast. We have a sample spoon underneath it where we can pull out the coffee as it's roasted. And then, after the coffee's roasted and we're happy with the colour, then we'll drop it into this big cooling tray here. And that will cool the coffee. If we didn't do that, the coffee would carry on roasting and you would get a lot of baked flavours going on. I suppose much like an egg continues to cook after you boil it, unless you peel it very quick. That's it, that's it. So we Don't wanna... get dippy eggs. No, <laughs> no. Hard-boiled eggs. That's it. Well, let's, let's hope for so, some hard-boiled coffee. So. With all our fingers and toes crossed, we poured the beans into the roaster. Alex from the Botanical Gardens, Simon and I, we all watched in awe at our hard work roll around the machine, much like clothes in a tumble dryer. And then the beans began to pop like popcorn. So we're we're approaching first crack. The beans are agitating a lot more. They're giving off a lot more energy and they're doubling in size. I can't tell. My non-coffee connoisseur eye can't tell the difference. I can tell they've changed colour. I can see they're dancing more and they've got a snap to them now. Yeah, much more of a caramel. Yep. Oh, yeah, and I can definitely get the smell of coffee now, but yep. that, that smell you associate with... Uh... Unless you could, I think you might be smelling some from that tub oh. there, actually. Well, it smells <laughs> really nice. Whatever it is, it smells well, it's funny, really good. Because, well, it's, it's often confused, but when, when we're roasting coffee, it's, it's usually, you, you'd expect it to be the coffee smell, but it's not. It's actually like a sort of a, a toast smell. It's like a breakfast smell that you'd get in the morning. We're about to drop the coffee out into the cooling tray from the drum. Looking a bit patchy, but you know it's the best we could do under the circumstances, I, I believe. But you know they've, they've got a bit of mottling and a bit of you know difference in colour. But I would say characteristic of the botanical gardens. Is that right? Yeah, characteristic. <laughs> Not sure we want to own that one. <laughs> Patchy in colour or not, the proof is in the taste. So we ground them up and brewed them. But first, I had a quick question about the science of grinding. In supermarkets, you might have seen that on the packaging it says ground for French press or espresso or whatever. But do you really need to buy a different grind for different types of brewing? Or is this just some clever marketing ploy? The grinder is probably most important in getting the consistency between the beans. And if you've got a good grinder, then you get an even surface area. And the more evenness between the beans, the the better the extraction. 
and so yes for espresso you want a fine grind as you're getting more towards the sort of mocha pot it wants to go a little bit coarser and as you go to French press that's the coarsest grind so we're going to grind this coffee up for paper filter away we go Do you feel tense? Do you feel tense? Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. <laughs> cheers, 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 cheers. It definitely is rummy. Yeah, some rum, almost some sort of sherry elements. See, look, it didn't taste like mud, Alex. No, it didn't. I'm really happy, actually. I would actually drink that. How would you say this compares to what you would normally be brewing? It's funny because it's like nothing that I've tasted really, and and you know it's not bad actually. I'm really quite enjoying it. I mean, it's it's, it's very different. So, if Alex was to set up his own cultivation <laughs> business at Cambridge Botanical Gardens, would you buy his coffee? Well, I'd certainly give it another go to put through the roaster, but I might need more than about ten grams. <laughs> so. Alex, what do you say? I mean, I feel like I should be a shareholder at least, having introduced you guys. Absolutely, absolutely. I think what we'll put to the director is ripping out all the plants and just putting coffee right through the <laughs> tropical houses. Yeah. <laughs> Gloria Jackson brewing some java there. One of the big issues we've looked at this year has been the ever-present threat to our planet's biodiversity. Species are under immense pressure, but sometimes animals can surprise you and thrive in unexpected places, as Connie found out earlier in the year. She visited a brownfield site, which is an area which used to be developed, Creekside Discovery Centre in London, with tour guide Nick Bertrand. Uh, so you need the same size... I've got big feet. You've size, got big feet? Yeah. What size? Size 9. Size 9. Ooh. Get you. <laughs> <laughs> so they're size 9. Say size 9 waders for size 9 feet. Fantastic. I'll find the man's waders. Yes, that's right. Huge, thigh-high rubber waders. You may have seen something similar on Fisherman. OK. I feel like a bit of an idiot... That's fine. That's all right. We've got loads of idiots around here. All booted up, we were ready to go. Creekside is on a tiny wedge of land with a bank of wild flowers leading down to the river. A rare sight in a part of London that, as you may be able to hear, is undergoing huge amounts of redevelopment. We've cranes to the left of us, cranes to the right of us, cranes ahead of us, and we're going into the valley of the creek. Great. Let's go. As we come over the brow of the slope here, we're moving down from dry land into wetland. And you can see the white flowers just ahead. And they're the flowers of hemlock water dropwort, which tell you you are moving into the wetland zone. And it gets a bit less pretty down the bottom. I start to see yeah. the sludge. Well, it's, don't forget where you are now. Uh, if you were standing here six hours from now, you'd be underwater. So... Up there where all the white flowers are, that's the shallow water. And then when you're moving into the deeper area where the tide's really going to be covering it by more than a metre or so, the vegetation, there's very few plants that can cope with that. We began to wander into the river itself, a hive for biodiversity with fish, frogs, crabs and, well, an awful lot of rubbish, really. I couldn't help wondering if the animals might be a bit happier in a river free from shopping trolleys and old mattresses. Here now, probably not. I mean, the river itself is clean. What everybody wants to do the creek when they first see it is 
clean it up and tidy it up and pull everything out. And that can actually be detrimental to the wildlife here. Because a, a creek is a very specialised environment anyway, there's lots of things the wildlife has to be able to cope with. And actually, some of the rubbish in the creek actually helps it do that. So Jill Goddard, who was running the project to do with the creek in the 90s, uh, she organised a clean-up at the top end of the creek. On one weekend, over 400 shopping trolleys were removed. And uh, a couple of weeks after the clean-up, the number of young fish in the creek had halved. Wow. Just a couple of weeks after? Yes. So... That immediately got everybody thinking about the one thing that had happened that had changed in that period was the removal of the shopping trolleys. And because we've got no natural riverbanks, these are places young fish go in to hide in amongst when the tide comes in. As you can see, at low tide here, there's no big bad fish. As soon as the tide comes in, so do the big bad fish. So the little fish need to get out of the way. What they do is they go into the vegetation at the sides. They can't do that here because there isn't the vegetation. What they have got is shopping trolleys. <laughs> <laughs> so the shopping trolleys accumulate debris. There's only one side anything can get into a shopping trolley. So they're a perfect little refuge. and They provide a niche for not just fish but all sorts of other invertebrates and other things too. We're not trying to encourage people to chuck things into it. We're just trying to work with what we've got here uh, to to make the best of it, which is what the wildlife does as well. So hopefully plenty more fish in the sea. And speaking of which, earlier in the year, love guru Viren Swamy gave us some top scientific dating tips. Well, I suppose the first thing is that if you are physically attractive, you will... You'll receive a sort of premium um, in terms of dating. So attractive people tend to get asked out on dates more often. They also tend to have sex more often. And if you're female, you probably have more orgasms during sex. Oh, that's not fair. (laughs) Well, the idea is that if you're with someone who's physically attractive, your partner is more likely to make an effort with you in bed. Wow. Why is being good looking so important then? One idea is that seeing someone attractive is rewarding in some way. Um, It activates part of the brain that is also activated when we get any kind of reward like drugs or money. So it's possible that seeing someone attractive is rewarding. And if that's the case, then we want to see them more often. The other possibility is that most human beings have a stereotype about what attractive people are like. We tend to think that attractive people are more popular, more sociable, healthier, and we have all kinds of weird thoughts about these attractive people. So it probably makes sense that if these thoughts are at least partially based in reality, then we want to be with attractive people. Is attractiveness just a bonus in in your dating life? No, it's it's a bonus in all kinds of spheres. So in occupational settings, people who are attractive tend to get hired more often. They tend to get fired less often. Uh, they get a higher starting wage. They make more money over the course of their lifetime. In other settings, uh, university students get higher grades if they're attractive. <laughs> I could keep going. This is not cheering me up this <laughs> Valentine's Day. But I suppose it's not that surprising. So what other things have you found? What about personality? Well, lots of surveys have been conducted to where you simply ask people what they look for in a, in a potential partner. And there are three main categories. So the three categories tend to be uh, physical appearance. And secondly, possibly things like status and uh, reputation. But usually the most important criterion that most people are looking for 
are things to do with niceness. We like nice people. We like people who are loyal, who have a good sense of humour, who are faithful and so on. And this is true of both women and men. So both women and men say they would like a partner who has all these qualities. One of the things that people maybe don't think about very often is the effects of proximity. We like people who are nearby in general, and we tend not to have too many relationships with people who are further away. But when you ask people about proximity, it maybe doesn't figure so much in their thoughts about a potential partner. We don't tend to think, like, I'm looking for someone who's, who's nearby. But that's actually what tends to happen. What about playing hard to get? Is this a good idea? Well, the science suggests that it doesn't work, and it doesn't work because it contravenes the theory of reciprocity. The theory of reciprocity simply predicts that we like people who like us. Uh, So showing someone that you like them, in theory, should result in them liking you in return. Playing hard to get contravenes that. It shows that you dislike someone or you're too difficult to get. Now, speaking of dating tips, we spoke a little bit yesterday about some good and bad chat-up lines, and you fed me some lines which science says should be good or should be bad, and... um, I went out to Cambridge Brewhouse with some help on a little social experiment to try some of these lines. Um, So the first one you gave me is, um, if you could have any topping on a pizza, what would it be? I've I've just got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, If you could have any topping on a pizza, right, anything you want, what would you have? Anything on a pizza. On a pizza, bacon. 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 Why would you have bacon? I don't know. I like bacon. You like bacon? Yeah. I, I like think I'm a, I like mushrooms. I'm a mushroom kind of guy. Mushroom. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't like mushrooms. <laughs> that was um, willing participant Robbie Bennett you heard there trying your line, and it did work pretty well. They ended up talking together for ages. So what actually makes this a good line? It goes to the theory of reciprocity. Reciprocity simply predicts that when you ask an open-ended question, you're much more likely to get a, a reply from that person. But that particular question also forces the other individual into a norm of conversation. The kind of tendency is to ask the other person in return what they like, but otherwise it just gets awkward. So human politeness, if anything else, will just force you to engage. Exactly. Now, you also fed me a bad line, and the bad line you fed me was, I like reading, which um, I gave it a go, so let's hear how I got on. So, um, I really like reading. Okay. So do I. Yeah? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, that was a bad chat up. Yeah, that wouldn't have worked. No. What would you say would have been a good chat up? Um, maybe I like reading Joseph Conrad. Oh, Heart of Darkness, right? Heart of Darkness. Oh, okay. That would work. For on. next time, yeah. you like Joseph Conrad? Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Obviously, that went really terribly. There was no interaction at all. And what I enjoyed is that his suggestion actually went down really badly with the girl I think he was seeing. So why? what made this a bad chat-up line? Well, it's a bad chat-up line because it's a closed question. You are essentially just stating a fact rather than trying to force reciprocity. I guess for his partner, I guess it raises questions about how similar they really are. Well, do you have a top tip, a final science hack for anyone who might be looking for love? I get asked this question a lot. And I always say that dating is stressful. It is stressful for everyone because there is so much anxiety involved. In fact, there are studies suggesting that at the start of a relationship, particularly in the first few months, your levels of cortisol go start to increase, suggesting that it is stressful. And because it's stressful, we sometimes behave in silly ways. 
And my advice really would be just to be kind to everyone. Everyone is, everyone who's dating at least is in the same boat and they're all being stressed and they're all finding it difficult. And if you're kind, not just to other people, but also to yourself, I find it goes much better. Sterling advice. That was Viren Swami here on The Naked Scientists. Now, once a month on The Naked Scientists, we have programmes where we answer all of the wonderful and frankly weird questions you guys send in to us. Like, for example, this one. Now, Eleanor, we've got this question for you. You're not off the hook yet. Do fishes fart? For some strange reason, this thought came to mind while I was in my bath. As a physician, I know that human flatulence comes from two sources, swallowed air or gases produced during digestion. Since fish can't swallow air, perhaps their digestion also produces gases? That was John, by the way, who was in his bath when he conceived that question. (laughs) I think this is a fantastic question. I absolutely love this question. And I can say categorically that some fish do fart. In fact, a recent study discovered for the first time that herringfish produce farts, fart noises, which they think they use for communication. Uh, How? (laughs) Herrings... Talk to each other by farting at them. Apparently, they discovered that if they put more more and more fish into a tank together, the increase in fart noises would increase disproportionately to the number of fish. When you say fart noises, do do you literally mean as in farting noises? Well, yes. It's a small jet of air which comes out of the anus. Where do they get the air from? Because as, as is pointed out in the question, fish don't breathe air. And when we swallow air, it, some of it emerges at the back end and the bugs in our gut metabolise some of it to uh, gas. So where do the fish get theirs? Different fish are kind of put together differently. In the case of herring fish, they have their swim bladder, which is a little sack of air that helps them like kind of buoyancy around the place under the sea, is attached to their gut. And they can actually gulp the air in from the surface. And they do produce a little bit of gases themselves, which then go from there into the swim bladder. If the swim bladder gets too full or they want to change depth, they can then spit some of the water back out. So yeah, that's where the herring get their get their farts from. So oh. it, is, it is true then. <laughs> I just think that's amazing. I, I've just been home to see my parents and I think the dog was trying to tell me something. <laughs> and do keep those questions coming in the new year. We really love reading them. You can send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Now, politically, it's been an interesting year, not least during the American elections. Connie decided to turn to the animal kingdom to see what we could learn from nature's version of democracy. I welcome you to the first presidential debate. The participants tonight are Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Choosing a leader can be a long and complicated affair with lots of stages, rules and traditions. The 90-minute debate is divided into six segments, each 15 minutes long. We'll explore three topic areas tonight, achieving prosperity, America's direction and securing America. And it will often involve millions of people voting en masse based on information gleaned from months of campaigns. It's far from simple, but humans are not the only animals to elect leaders. So when it comes to choosing positions of power, how do we match up? I asked Marta Manser from the University of Zurich to talk me through what the animals do. Either it's being the strongest or being the most clever, having the best knowledge. But usually it's not just an easy way to become the leader. But once you are the leader, then it might not take that much to really suppress the others and to accept you as leader. Only if you show weaknesses, the other group members might try to overrule you and take that position. And why is it that within these groups they're so happy to follow one leader? Why would you make that decision? 
It's probably the least energetic way. If I uh, always have to make decisions and I have to convince the other individuals to follow that decision, I, I have to invest quite a lot of energy. And I think also in humans, that's probably very similar, as long as that's the much easier way than to invest a lot of uh, input time and energy, we are quite happy to follow other individuals. Animals will often choose the easiest option. If they can use less energy following someone else than making their own decisions, well, all the better. It's definitely quicker, but not particularly rigorous. Us humans would surely know that the loudest in the group isn't necessarily the best. If you have a group of uh, humans, of individuals, and uh, you tell them they should just try to be in the group, but you tell one of those people a specific information, for example, they should go to the location in the north, that individual should then obviously try uh, to lead the rest of the group and tries to, to make the way up north. And because of that individual has a specific uh, aim, it probably behaves quite dominant. It's very determined. It's going in that direction. The rest of the other people, they don't have a goal, so they just follow the most obvious determined individual. And we find that in humans, we find that in meerkats, we find that in fish. So that's a very common occurrence in, in the animal kingdom. So when thinking about something like a presidential election, it might be the person that shouts loudest and longest might tempt us. Yeah, well, exactly. I think uh, in elections like that, it's the emotions that count. And then really, if you are the most convincing by being the loudest, by behaving very obvious, a lot of people might just follow that. They might not look what the content of that person really is. They might just follow the most obvious signs. Oh dear, maybe we're not as diligent as we thought. But no worries. If recent UK politics has taught us anything, when we're unhappy with our leader, we can always attempt to coup. Jeremy Corbyn has lost the confidence of eight out of ten Labour MPs and has been hit by as many as 60 resignations from his front bench team. He looks set to face a leadership challenge, but Mr Corbyn says he won't betray his supporters by resigning. And we're not alone in that either. As Oxford University's Isabel Watts found out, pigeons will form a coup of their own. When a leader of a pigeon flock had incorrect information, Instead of the information being passed straight down the hierarchy and therefore the whole flock taking an incorrect route, which could be very detrimental, that the hierarchy was actually able to reorganise itself and therefore the leader bird was no longer at the front and therefore its information was no longer as key to the flock's decision making. And therefore actually the flock were able to fly the same route as they had flown in training without taking in this incorrect information. And this was quite a key result, and it showed that the hierarchy, although being very stable, is actually a flexible system, and that they can use this flexibility in situations where the performance of the whole flock would suffer if it was inflexible. Desperate times cause for desperate measures. When they know that their leader is possibly going to cause problems for everyone, they can, let's say, relegate that leader and put them further yeah. down the pecking order. And how do you send a pigeon in the wrong direction in the first place? We use a process called clock shifting. And clock shifting essentially jet lags birds, so it causes them to have a faulty compass. And what you can do is basically place the birds in a light-tight room for a few days, where you can turn the lights on and off 
that time shifted compared to real sunrise and sunset. And therefore you can reset their internal body clocks to become shifted. And this means once they're released, they'll misinterpret the sun's position by a predictable magnitude. So this means that by just clock shifting the leaders, we can create birds that have incorrect navigational information compared to the rest of the flock. And what if they don't want to lose their authority? What if your pigeon wants to remain a leader? Can they keep control of the pack? It's probably unlikely because I think if all the other birds want to, for example, fly right and the leader wants to fly left, the leader doesn't have much choice because either it flies alone or it thinks it's more important to fly as a flock, which is often the case for pigeons, and therefore I'll just follow. But we don't exactly know the mechanism behind when the leader loses its leadership, because either the leader could choose not to lead, or the followers could choose not to follow. Well, there you have it. Even in politics, we're not that special. But when choosing our next leaders, let's make a pact to contain our animal instincts and try to look a little deeper. Now, for some, the election was a distressing event. But not to worry, as we've also been uncovering how to become less stressed this year. The key? Laughter, as Greya found out when she spoke to Sophie Scott. You do, after you've been laughing, get a decrease in adrenaline levels and also decreases in cortisol levels, which does suggest that you are more relaxed, you're feeling less stressed after you've been laughing. This is Sophie Scott from UCL, and she's done a lot of research into laughter. Laughter's more like a different way of breathing than it is anything else. So what happens when you're laughing is the intercostal muscles, which is the muscles between your ribs, start to move in large contractions, and they just squeeze air out of you. Now, normally, you use those muscles to control what's called metabolic breathing. So you're doing that all the time. That keeps you alive. You use those same muscles to speak. So as soon as you start talking, you use the intercostal muscles to very finely control flow of air out through your larynx. If I keep talking without taking another breath, my intercostal muscles start to have to work really, really hard to squeeze the air out, and in the end, I'll run out of air altogether. Now, as soon as you start laughing, you lose the control of the intercostal muscles that lets you breathe and lets you talk. And in fact, because one of the main jobs that you're doing with your breathing when you're speaking is actually controlling how you pass air through your larynx, so how you're making a sound in your voice box, very often the first thing you can pick up when someone's talking and starting to laugh actually is this loss of control of the pitch of the voice. And very often the pitch of the voice starts to shoot up because you're starting to squeeze air out under much higher pressures than you would ever do when you were speaking normally. So this is an example of the Radio 4 broadcaster Charlotte Green um, who's introducing a piece on the Today programme about a very early discovery of recorded sound and then she goes on to uh, talk about somebody quite famous who's died and in the interim when they're listening to the example of this very early recorded sound someone who's in the studio with her makes a joke about what it sounds like so you'll hear what happens to her voice when she comes back trying to talk about the death of a screenwriter. American historians have discovered what they think is the earliest recording of the human voice, made on a device which scratched sound waves onto paper blackened by smoke. It was made in 1860, 17 years before Thomas Edison first demonstrated the gramophone, and featured an excerpt from a French song, Au Claire de la Lune. The, 
The award-winning screenwriter Abby Mann has died at the age of 80. He won an Academy Award in 1961 for Judgment at Nuremberg. Abby, excuse me, sorry. Abby Mann also won several Emmys, <laughs> including, including one in 1973 for a, f- for a film which featured a player. <laughs> A police detective called <laughs> the character on whom a long-running TV series was eventually based. It's ten minutes past eight. Oh, that's such a great clip. It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? She's desperately trying to keep going. I think that's one of the things that's enjoyable about it. She's on live radio. She's got to keep talking. And her voice is just going everywhere. So beyond just those contractions of those muscles, what sort of effect does that have on the rest of our body? There's an evidence for a range of changes in terms of the sort of the the biochemistry of the body so you do after you've been laughing immediately get a change in the body's uptake in naturally circulating endorphins so you get a measurable change in in pain threshold after you've been laughing that is actually it looks like it's more to do with the work the, the work you're doing at your rib cage than it is anything specifically to do with laughing because you get the same change in endorphin take up if you do any kind of exercise you get a change in in pain thresholds so that may not be laughter specific you also get over slightly longer time scales a decrease in adrenaline levels and also decreases in cortisol levels which does suggest that you are more relaxed you're feeling less stressed after you've been laughing and that might be more specific to laughter does that mean we should all be laughing you look like you're about to laugh yourself does that mean we should all be laughing more I think it's certainly uh, we should let ourselves laugh. I mean, we should definitely let ourselves go to places and situations where we laugh because we tend to think it's a bit of a trivial, silly behaviour. And definitely, I mean, there's very, very little research into it scientifically compared to emotions like fear and disgust because it does sort of feel a bit silly to do this. And we, we don't often let ourselves take our laughter seriously. But actually, I think we should, you know, consider it to be an important aspect of our lives that we should give a bit of space to. Where do we laugh the most? I'm thinking if we want to give more space to our laughter, what should we be pursuing or going out to do that will invoke laughter? It is quite interesting because if you ask humans, and Robert Provine's shown this, if you ask human beings, adults, where do you laugh? What do you laugh at? They'll talk about jokes and humour and comedy. But actually we laugh most when we're with other people. So it's a behaviour that's primed just by other people being there. You're 30 times more likely to laugh if there's somebody else there than if you're on your own. And that means in practice that most of the laughter you encounter sort of naturally is actually when you're talking to other people because that's what we do when we're with other people. And laughter is less to do in those situations with uh, humour, or hardly ever laughing at jokes, for example. It's got more to do with making and maintaining social bonds. So when you laugh with people, you're laughing as much to show them that you like them. If you're not laughing at jokes, then, what are you laughing at? People are laughing at statements like, I will have another cup of coffee or I might miss my bus. And in fact, Robert Provine's shown at any one point in time, the person who laughs most is the person who's speaking. And I think in that context, it is quite interesting because there's some interesting work looking at relationships and how people deal with stress in relationships that shows couples who deal with stressful situations by using what the scientists call positive affect but they mean stuff like laughter not only immediately become less stressed they're also the couples who are happier in their relationship and they stay together for longer 
And these interactions, does it always have to be face-to-face? I'm thinking today people are more mobile, you know, they're living away from their family and friends, and often that means conversations take place over instant messages or texts. Do you evoke the same laughter or is it a different thing altogether? Well, there is some uh, evidence that you you get most laughter and people talk for longer and are happier after conversations that are face-to-face so you can see and hear the person more than if you can only hear them so you're on the phone and that's even more again than if you can just you've just got words so you've just got text emails sms that kind of thing so it does suggest that the more social information you have the more you will laugh the happier you're going to feel the longer you're going to talk for and you can see people trying to put laughter back in you know in a lot of text-based mediums people try all sorts of ways of you know writing lol or using smiley faces or emoticons or anything that will kind of try and suggest i'm giving you laughter there's laughter going on we try and put it back there but it's never quite the same my favorite of those has always been ruffle which is roll on floor laughing but i don't think i've ever ruffled after a text (laughs) and you see people trying to you know elaborate on that like ruffle copter or you know just anything to try and kind of indicate the severity of this but as you say you're writing it you're actually not necessarily doing it so do you think laughter is possibly the best medicine is the fable true I think laughter probably is a really uh, good medicine but I think what we shouldn't do is think of that as like laughter exists on its own I think it's the fact that laughter primarily happens in social interactions and it's really hard to pull apart from that so you do find yourself laughing on your own, but you laugh much, much more when you're with other people and you laugh even more if you like those people. So actually, it's like the laughter is an index of all this other social stuff that's going on. And it's very hard to pull apart what's actually contributing to the benefits of the laughter in that context, because actually the whole thing could be good for you. So whatever 2017 brings, we'll be ready with a smile. And we look forward to bringing you shed loads of science, starting next week with a Q&A. We'll be answering all of your questions, so send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. From me, Georgia Mills, and from the rest of the Naked Scientist team, goodbye and a very happy new year. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.